Hi, Chris Glynn here with the Nightlight Podcast. John Patrick is with me on the program today. John has spent years bringing relief to the many refugees in Turkey, Syria, and other countries in the Middle East. And John was in Turkey when on the 6th of February, those massive earthquakes hit. John, the whole world was stunned by the images of total devastation brought to us by the many news reporters that quickly flew in to cover the story. But you were already there on the ground and you personally experienced the terrible earthquake and its aftermath. Please tell us your experience. Okay, at the moment I was in Adana, Turkey, Turkey's fourth largest city, about two hours uh West of Antioch, Antakya, they say, where the heart of the earthquake was, Antakya and Karaman, Marash, a bit to the north. I was resting, uh, sleeping, and woken up by the loud noise of the apartment building shaking, my bed shaking. I was alone. It was the middle of winter, a freezing cold night, and jumped out of my bed and you have a decision to make. Do you go and try to crouch next to the refrigerator because there's such a massive earthquake. You wonder if the buildings don't fall on you. I was only in a three-story building and hopefully survived. I studied before on earthquake, how to survive earthquake disasters. I've lived through them. And sometimes they say you find a safe place like next to a refrigerator or washing machine where hopefully that will break the falling cement upon you. Right. So I just had a Split second to decide, but those seconds seem like an eternity. I'm sure. I waited, I felt intense, and I felt I just need to run for it. So thank God I was living on the ground floor. I ran, I got to the apartment door, and I could hear the screams of the people above me, the floors above. Gosh. And again, it was another split second decision. What do I do? Do I run upstairs and try to carry an elderly woman down? Or do I run outside? It just seems like so many thoughts come into you at that moment. Am I being selfish not to go upstairs and try to rescue this one woman? Am I only thinking about myself? I feel the Lord leads you at those moments and he said, go outside. If the building falls, it's not a big building. You can rescue this woman. You can rescue her. So I made it outside and to the cold winter rain and wind and it just seemed like a nightmare and you could just hear the people screaming from the nearby buildings and some people already on the streets yeah slowly thank god all the people made it out of the buildings no building fell on my block thank god so i survived that initial thing my neighbors were okay thank god i had the car keys on me somehow I just crawled into my car and my neighbors were in their car and we'd communicate back and forth. It was just so cold to go out, you know, go up and talk every few minutes, try and get news. We found out it was centered towards Antioch. We're all outside, a bit confused. Nearby us are large amount of high-rise apartments. And one of my friends was living there, 13, 14, 15-story building. And all the people were out in the streets. So five minutes went on, 10 minutes, nothing happened. So about 30 people went back into the building, get their car keys, get their jackets, get their blankets. 12 minutes after the first quake, I think it was 4.17 in the morning, came an aftershock. Many more buildings fell. 30 people lost their lives going back into the building 10 minutes after the earthquake. Oh, gosh. Same thing happened in Antakya. We had friends who were on the phone with the people in Taki, and all of a sudden they screamed. The buildings are falling again. The aftershocks were 
Shell shocks were shocking. There was at least 120 in that first day. Gosh. So for the next hour, I just spent in the car, called loved ones. Loved ones called me. It's great to have loved ones when you, you don't feel alone. Yes. And basically, I think I had my pajamas on. I shivered till the early morning hours. And it was just wonderful that you had people loved you and called you. When you go through that, you see how, how important loved ones are and family are. You just want to nurture relationships when you're all alone and you don't know what's going to happen the next minute. Yeah, it was very comforting to have these loved ones calling me. It must have been. Well, I can't imagine that you got much sleep that night in the car with all of this uh, devastation happening around you. Well, I had broken sleep because there's so many aftershocks. It was so cold, shivering. So around 9 o'clock, I got with together some friends I have with the charity I worked with. Some were, were there. And we met around 10 in the morning. I ventured back into the house. We kept our doors open, ventured back and got dressed. We went and met with the people at the little charity I'm involved with. Right. We decided uh, this is so bad. The news began so bad. Let's go to the heart of the earthquake. It's a decision we made. We said, let's go to the very heart. I'm a veteran of earthquakes. I was through the two earthquakes in Turkey in 1999, a massive Istanbul earthquake, August uh, 1999. Wow. I've been in Greek earthquakes. I did earthquake relief work in Indonesia. So I sort of knew what people needed. I said, let's just load the car with uh, cheese, olives, bread, stuff that they could uh, eat without cooking. Right. Because usually after earthquake, there's no electricity. There's no water. You just want to get people food and blankets too. So we met, said, okay, let's do it. We all decided, let's go to the heart. We went to Iskenderun, a large port city on the Eastern Mediterranean, about 45 minutes from Antioch, Antioch. John, can I just jump in quickly and ask, did you just happen to have all these olives and cheese and everything right there on hand? Oh no, in our place, we went to a local warehouse. Oh, I see. Like the shops are closed. All the shops in our city were closed because most of the shops are on the buildings. And people were afraid to go into the shops to open them. But we went to a wholesaler and bought all this stuff. And while we were loading our car, 1.30 in the afternoon, another massive earthquake hit. This is just like seven hours later, maybe. Gosh. And it, it knocked me off my feet. Wow. I mean, it just knocked me over. And thank God I was able to grab onto the car. I would have been knocked totally over. That's how powerful it was. It was a 7.4. Now, if you know anything about earthquakes, like, I remember years ago, I think it was in Chile, a six-point earthquake, what damage it did. Each point that you go up is three times stronger. So a 7.8 was 30 times stronger than that 6.8. Then we got hit by a 7.4. And the aftershocks, they weren't even counting. Some of them must have been seven-point aftershocks. They were just brief, you know, movements. So, yeah, so we went to a warehouse, got these things, went downtown to a little place where these were places uh, where they sold blankets. There's no, they're not in a big building. Right. So we loaded our car and just headed straight to Iskenderun. Uh, there was a Syrian school teacher called one of our friends and looked, there's all these people camped out in the schoolyard and some were sleeping in school, brave souls, but we have nothing. We're hungry. There's no water. Can you please bring us aid? So we said, okay, these are the first people that called us. Let's go there. So we drove to Iskenderun, and coming in there, there's a massive cloud of black smoke 
up over the sky, and it was the, the port of Iskenderm caught on fire. I guess some uh, containers got knocked over, some were combustible, there was a massive fire there. I saw pictures. And getting into the city, it was getting dark, 5, 6 o'clock, I, you know, winter time, sunset, 6 o'clock, 6.30, it was getting dark, it just seemed like there was a, a darkness over the city, and people were like zombies, people carrying whatever little belongings they had, little vegetable shopping carts, uh, grocery carts. Pitiful. People who were fortunate who had cars trying to get out of the city. It took us like to go through a roundabout, sometimes an hour, just to get through, because so many people trying to leave the city because there was nothing in the city. Right. There was no electricity. The water lines were broken. It was total chaos. It must have been. So we, anyway, after an hour or so, we finally, hour and a half maybe, we made it to school, did our distribution there, and people were so thankful, told them we'd be back. And we did come back to these people. God bless you. So that night, we went home, and I worked with several charities in Adana, and one was uh, having uh, homes for Syrian children with cancer, and that home had filled up with 17 new families with children who had various sicknesses from Antakya and Iskenderim. All the hospitals were destroyed. Gosh. So people came to our house. We had 17 new families to take care of the first night when we got home. God bless you. We had no idea to put them. Some needed immediate treatment. The hospitals were packed. It was total chaos. Uh, at least four children in our cancer homes died within the coming month as the hospitals were over, overflowing. They couldn't get the treatment they needed. So sad. So it was, a, what you say, tragedy upon tragedy, a disaster within a disaster. Already the situation on the Turkish-Syrian border is pretty much a, a disaster before the earthquake because of the inflation in Turkey, the ongoing Russian bombing of Idlib and the refugee crisis there. So this just compounded the situation. And the second day, we headed out to Antioch. Again, filled up our car with the same things. And we went to the, the main part of, of Antakya, downtown, where one of our volunteers' cousin was living in a large building in the main street of Antakya that went down. It was living in a 13-story building. So right next to it was the famous... Uh, renaissance luxury hotels it was advertised as a place of paradise in downtown antakya antakya is a beautiful city historic city it's the so many civilizations have lived in antakya it's the city of antioch right the one that you read about in the book of acts in the bible yes yes it is the biblical city of antioch it's a lovely place it's okay sadly the city of antioch lies close to the meeting of the African, Arabian, and Anatolian tectonic plates. So it has a history of earthquakes. Seven times the city's been destroyed throughout history. You can look it up online. Once in 100, once in 500, 526 AD, 100 AD. Total devastation. So why they built another large city on it is madness. Right. But Antioch goes way back. It was built by one of Alexander's generals. It's a beautiful land, lovely place, olive trees, 15 minutes from the Mediterranean Sea. And before the earthquake of 526 AD, it was the world's third largest city. Really? Many Romans loved to live there, far away from the politics of Rome, close to the sea, much warmer than Italy. And it was also revered by Christians, Muslims, and Jews. It had the first illuminated streets in the entire history of mankind. Wow. And to Christian history, St. Peter and Paul founded one of the oldest Christian communities there. 
Luke, Mother Mary, Peter, Paul, Barnabas, many other disciples lived there. And it's where the followers of Jesus of the first century were first called Christians. You can read about that in Acts chapter 11. The beautiful cave church of St. Peter overlooks the city. It was a hideout for the early Christians there. So it's really where Christianity blossomed in Antioch. And fascinating, the Muslims have a mosque there. It's the only place in Turkey, present-day Turkey, that's mentioned in the Quran. It's a mosque built to a Christian martyr who was martyred by the Romans when bringing the faith, Christianity, to Antioch. Interesting. So it's a beautiful blend of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam right there. Right. It's a nice city. It's a historical city. But there's something, I think, wrong with mankind to want to keep building these large buildings in places that are not safe. So that's famous luxury apartments, the Renaissance apartments, they advertise the paradise in downtown Antakya, turned into a hell in a matter of probably seconds that building fell. It turns out the building contractors didn't do a good job, and sad to say, there were many unnecessary deaths because of that. And now Antioch is gone, right? That's what I've read, that there's nothing left standing. Is that right? It's gone. It's finished. I was just there a few weeks ago. They're still finding bodies as they're clearing out the rubble. There's just so much rubble in the city. And old Antioch is cordoned off by the military. You can't go into it. Because in 2010, they found out there's a whole other city beneath Antioch. Oh, they were trying to not excavate it, but make it for tourism where you can go down under the present city of Antioch and see one of the oldest cities of Antioch. Interesting. And there's just so many historical treasures in Antioch. So it was the head of the, for years, the Greek Orthodox Church was based out of Antioch. So many of the early Christian councils were held there. Yes. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad what happened. Very sad. But God knows why. So we spent Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday in Antioch bringing aid. Then we started heading out to some of the other cities, Karaman, Marash. The thing about this earthquake, it hit 10 different states. 10. And not just the cities fell but the villages between them. Right. The Muslims there, they call it a Kiamet earthquake. They said this was not an earthquake. This was the earthquakes of the end time. Wow. And the first night we were there in Iskenderim, a Syrian woman told me, like, this is way worse than the Syrian civil war. The Syrian civil war, you would hear the planes coming, the bombs would fall, you know, several apartment buildings would fall. Slowly, slowly the cities fell, but we could go deep underground. We knew they were coming. We could hide in the basement. But this was all at once. You know, that's just one neighborhood bond, the entire neighborhood's falling, city after city, village after village. So it's much worse than a war. Like a candle in the night, it's nightlight. Tell us, John, how was it there on the ground? We heard there were millions who were suddenly homeless and that they were just out on the street having lost everything except the clothes that they woke up in, no food, no water, trying to keep warm by fires as they stood in the midst of the rubble of their apartments. It looked like a really desperate situation, which we heard about for a couple of weeks until the news reporters left and moved on to another story. So what happened in the aftermath, in the weeks that followed? Okay, first of all, there's something wonderful about the Turkish people. I lived through the Istanbul earthquake in 1999, and outside of Istanbul, terrible destruction, terrible, and Goljuk was the city. People from every corner of Turkey filled up their cars with water, food, blankets, 
and intense immediately brought it to earthquake area. Wonderful. There's just an incredible thing in Turkey. When Turkey's threatened, the people just come together like unbelievable. And it's very beautiful. It's just they, the care they have for each other. So you have that. That's good to hear. Okay, the first night I was in Antakya, the second day of the earthquake, Wednesday night, the 7th of February. Right. There was already eight teams from all over the world. I saw two Hungarian teams, and they were rescuing people out. It was heartbreaking in front of, say, let's say, the Renaissance apartments. They were just stacking up the bodies in black body bags, you know, waiting for relatives to come and try to identify them. So that was very difficult. Heartbreaking. But Turkey is a very powerful country. It's aid comes in from everywhere. Like, say, let's say it's probably much worse than, say, Adiaman, way to the east of Turkey, where the roads were broken, you couldn't get to there, or some other cities you couldn't even get aid to. That must have been much worse. Must have been. Yeah, there's too many sad things. Like, you, okay, you had the main street where all the aid teams, government aid teams, so many Turkish rescue teams, but then it's a massive city with 700,000 people. You go into the side streets and... You can hear the wailing underneath the pancake buildings, and it's a thing you don't want to hear. It reminded me of a scene I saw in the movie, uh, Russell Crowe's movie, The Water Diviner, of a battle of Gallipoli in, in no man's land after one of the major battles when night fell, just the wailing of the people injured and dying. So you hear that, the sounds of death. The next day you go back, it's whimpers, and maybe third or fourth day, it's total silence. This is stuff you don't want to hear. And normally, I think any country could have handled it if it was just one city's earthquake, one city or two cities, but so many cities went down, and the earthquakes were so big, so many neighborhoods were totally destroyed, you just couldn't get to it. So it was horror. Like, we just, we couldn't go in there. I mean, the little families huddled. You see people on in the streets, little storefronts, that small building survived sitting there cold we just bring them food and talk with them and try to make the children smile but there's not much we can do uh, after two days of that on thursday i think we brought our our first truck but now people are moving in the container cities are being rapidly built there's still lots of people in tents the mayor of antakya just wrote me today asking we need five thousand flip-flops for the people in tent cities really for the people in the container cities stuff like that you don't even have sandals you left your buildings with the clothes on your back. Two weeks ago, we brought T-shirts, undershirts, bras for women. A European charity was came. They had thousands of bras. These are stuff we take for granted. But it's the poorest people stayed. Those who had money, they moved to the Mediterranean, nicer places in Western Turkey. They've left Antioch. But those who don't have money are the ones who stayed. And a lot of Syrian refugees stayed because they don't have relatives, houses in the villages, or nothing. So these are the people we're helping now. Right. And we're still continue bringing truckloads of aid. It's been wonderful. People keep giving. So we'll keep bringing aid. In the immediate aftermath, there were many stories of people who surprisingly survived after three or four days under the rubble. But you were telling me that there were some truly amazing miracles of children surviving for even eight or nine days. Yeah. Oh, well, this is stories all over Syria, all over Turkey. Children, there's uh, a lovely video of a girl in Syria, explains it so beautiful, how a man in white would just come and bring them bread and water. Amazing. These stories are everywhere. And Deidax, uh, I'm not sure, DEI, Deidax Films, who produced Free Burma Rangers, 
they're starting a new show called Miracle Stories. And one of the first ones they want to do is about the Antioch uh, miracles, the miracles in Antioch, how many miracles are. They actually wrote us asking if we knew stories. Really? And they, and they just said, well, no, we haven't heard. But they said, too, he goes, well, maybe you were like those angels bringing food out to the people. <laughs> I mean, it's our duty to try to be God's angels. Yes. To try to bring aid. And that's, I think the church, there were many church-like angels. But in the worst cases, I think Jesus himself came nonstop taking care of these kids. Beautiful. There was over 1,500 children found not knowing who their parents are. One of our Syrian volunteers is part of a WhatsApp group. There's nearly 2,000 people in the Middle East who disappeared in Antioch, Karamamarash, all these different cities, Iskenderim. So they made a WhatsApp group trying to find the missing people. There's so many missing. And that was a terrible, terrible job to go. I, I could not take it. Go to the morgue and try to find these people. Right. Okay, here's a picture of, of a man. You can see in the picture, broken arm, broken legs. But this, there's a story behind it. He came in from Syria. The earthquake hit. A beam fell on his wife, paralyzed her. One of his children died. Three children were sent to Turkey. One ended up in Mersin Hospital, one in Ankara Hospital, like 500, 600 kilometers apart. And one daughter, God knows where she went, whether she survived or not. So the man came to us in Adana. We're well known, asking if we could uh, help find his daughter. So our main Arabic translator, a guy I worked with, who's come with, you know, just recently in Lebanon, helping us other places, Iraq. He does incredible work. He said, okay, let's look for the morgue. So he went to the city morgue looking for this six-year-old girl, five-year-old girl, whatever her age was. And while looking through the dead bodies, someone let the guy at the morgue know, said, look, we have some children upstairs. We don't know who the parents are. So he went up there, and there he found his daughter. And it was just, uh, we can't explain the moment how happy he was. Praise God. So with some of the gifts we received, we were able to help this man pay the rent for a, a new place at, for him to stay in Turkey for a while because he had uh, his house was destroyed in Syria. It's never completely dark when you're listening to Nightlight. But not all stories are so happy. Right, and that's why you've asked me to read this next story, because you said that you choke up every time that you try to share it. Mohammed and Rasha from Idlib in Syria lost their house during the earthquake and moved into a tent. Sadly, one night their wood heater was knocked over and they were badly burned. The children spent two days in a Syrian hospital because the Turkish hospitals were full before being transferred to a hospital in Turkey. The father arrived at our medical home three days later, but his children had died after a few hours in the hospital. The trauma of the last memory of his two beloved children being in that state was more than Muhammad could bear, so he asked us to identify their bodies before they were placed in their tiny body bags. The bodies needed to be returned to Syria so the mother could be there for their burial. We hired a car to drive them to their final resting place in their beloved homeland. We are unable to express these deep sorrows. The pain is too much at times. Thankfully, heaven is awaiting their beautiful souls. 
John, I've led such a sheltered life, so experiences like this I, I can't even relate to. I can't even imagine what it's like to be in that position, having to identify the burnt bodies of these two beautiful children for the grieving parents. And you told me that traumatic experiences like this did cause you to question at times God's goodness, God's holiness, and ask, where is God in all of this? And why did he allow this to happen? Which, of course, many, many others have the same questions. Well, I was trying to work on a newsletter, an earthquake update to send to the people who had sent finances. And I wanted to tell their story. The picture of them, they're just so beautiful. And every time I looked at the picture, I just wept. This went on for two or three days. You know, whenever I tried to do the news that I couldn't do it. And I saw I was really questioning God. Where are you, God? How could you let this happen? How can you be holy? I mean, forgive me. I mean, I just, I just didn't understand why they, such beautiful kids had to die in such a horrible way. Their whole life was war, then the earthquake. And then burned to death. Awful, yes. I don't think the Lord was angry with me for having these questions. There's so many psalms of complaint. Usually somehow end in a victory. You know, the prophet will praise God no matter what. David usually is the writer. But there are two psalms, Psalms 39 and Psalm 88. Both end with very negative verses. There's no hope at the end of them. Yes. You know, they end at, God, where are you? Or one says, like, darkness is my friend. Yeah, you just feel, yeah, it's darkness. Some people say, like, why did God have those psalms even in the Bible? But I think he left them there for a purpose. Like, we can end up feeling like this. Where is God? God, you're gone. The night is dark. It's just everything I see is sad and broken. But finally, when the light cracks through, so when you pour out your heart to the Lord, he always lets the light come through. And I think it helps you understand God's love for you even more. He loves you so much, he's willing to put up with your questions. He's willing to put up with your doubts. And then he comes through, like Psalm 27.10, I fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Praise God. Oh, thank God, early on the earthquake, I invited a strong Christian brother to come work with me as I, I was alone. Most of my colleagues are Muslims, and he was a great help. And then I had some Zoom meetings with different people who said, John, make sure you take time off, time in nature, time to enjoy. And I did get to take some time off. But it helped me, like, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. You're actually close to the Lord when you're in those times of darkness. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. We get crushed, but he saves us. That's right. He was patiently willing to put up with my doubts, fears, and complaints. And he sort of whispers to you that, one day all life's alarms will be made right. Not just right, to be made more than right. Amen. And God will wipe away all tears. So praying about it later, I saw there's this verse about how their angels, I had to find the verse for you, their guardian angels always watch over these little ones. Yes. And I felt that during the fire, the angels must have been right there with them. Yes. And a dear sister wrote me, and I really value this. He says, these troubles help lead us to Jesus. In the same way that Jesus came to his Father at every opportunity to commune with him and to receive the strength to carry on, we need to place these in the Lord's hand and let his love, strength, peace, and comfort pour into us so that we can fulfill the beautiful Bible verse that says, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, we so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Second Corinthians 1, 4, and 5. 
So I realized if I didn't get the victory, how can I comfort the, the many people who still needed me? Yes. And I felt the victory was, as his friend reminded me, was John, please spend more time alone with the Lord somehow. I, I couldn't do like Jesus, escape and get alone. You know, Jesus rose up early and, you know, went into the mountains to pray. If I rose up early, I was right in the middle of all this mess and distraction. There's no place to go. Right. But there's a mountain you can climb. There is a temple in the temple of your heart. You have to make a place where you can just meet God in the morning in your heart and find that rest. Now, personally, I didn't do too good in the first three weeks as a brother was with me, David, his name was from Texas. Good to see, like, we were losing it. Our team, you know, people were upset at us. We were helping only Syrians. Others were upset. We were helping only church. It started affecting our team. So we all just took a weekend off. I went to lovely valleys of Cappadocia, walking to the valleys. A girl I was working, she went to visit her family outside. So we took a weekend off. We came back and we were very refreshed and ready for the next round. Feeling tired? Get inspired with Nightlight. John, I know there's much, much more that you could share, but I think you've given us a pretty vivid idea of what it was like to have been there. When I first heard about the earthquakes, I immediately thought, well, thank God, at least John is there. (laughs) And I just knew that the Lord was going to mightily use you to be an encouragement and a help to the desperate and needy people around you, as you have been and as you still are. As I speak to you right now, you're in Cyprus for a few days rest, your first break from being in the midst of the situation, and you're flying back to Turkey tomorrow. What are you going back to? Has the country recovered any? Are there any signs of recovery for Turkey? Or has this permanently set the country back? Well, I don't know if Antakya could ever rebuild after this. But I know the Taiwanese are there. They're building two earthquake villages, I think 300 houses each. There's uh, little container houses on cement blocks being set up everywhere. But it's going to take years. But as I say, like the mayor just wrote us asking us for summer clothing, And if the Lord provides, or he has provided, we're going to go bring more summer clothing to the people living in tents. That's where the need is. I mean, through this on, through working with refugees over the years, I see God really does care about the poor. He does. You know, he really provides for them. We just need to get out there. And even if we can only bring a little, he multiplies it. Yes, amen. Well, John, God bless you. And our prayers are with you as you continue to be a blessing to those poor Turkish and Syrian people. It's such a wonderful work you're doing there. And thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. Anything more you'd like to share before we close? Well, I'm surprised sometimes when I see the signs on the walls in Antakya, we're going to rebuild it again and all this. Sometimes I wonder about, is this sometimes the pride of man to just want to rebuild their city so big, their towers? It goes back to Babylon. We'll make a name for ourselves. Right. Antioch has such a beautiful name, you know, so famous. But uh, I pray when all they're building, they'd humbly make it a very simple city. Yes. And I don't know, like, these people were more sinful than other people. Why did this earthquake happen here than other people? It reminds me of Luke 13, the Tower of Siloam. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So I think it's so like the dangerous times we're living in this. More war. I have a feeling more disasters are coming. People sort of sense this thing. So yes. I think it's a lesson that we all have to learn 
to draw closer to Jesus so we can have be shepherds of peace, have hearts full of peace, so we can be a light, a beacon of hope to these people in the last days. Amen. And let your light so shine before men. But if we're worrying and fretting, oh, the world's getting so bad, we won't be the light we're supposed to be. So I was reflecting a little bit on how they overcame in the book of Revelation chapter 12. It said they loved not their lives unto death. Revelation 12 verse 11. That's how they overcame the Antichrist. But thinking about how do we overcome all these problems of the world right now. They love not their lives unto the death is how King James Version says it. It's not like what Paul says, though I give my body to be burned, it profits me nothing. It's, it's not giving your body to be burned, burning out. No, not loving your life means you're loving Jesus so much, you're pressing into Jesus so much. That's the goal for last days, these days, whatever crisis. The solution is to press into Jesus, then he just help you be a blessing and a light to many. Thank you, Chris, for having me. This has been a real blessing, and I hope these lessons are a blessing to someone in their time of need. And listeners, please do keep John and his team in your prayers. And we're going to close with some more photos taken by John of their work among the earthquake survivors. I'll sign out here and look forward to being back with you again very soon. God bless you. Bye-bye.